How to Build a Life. That's the title of the Arthur Brooks regular column in The Atlantic on the timeless and critically important topic of what is a good life? And what is happiness? How to build a life. Well, Arthur has stirred some of those past columns of his as ingredients into a cauldron. He's invited Oprah Winfrey to get some of her own mix in there with him, and together they've arrived at a new brew. Well, it's actually a new book just out this week. Build the life you want, the art and science of getting happier. What is happiness? And does your money help? Are you doing it right? You know, building your life. Are you building the life you want? Let's talk about it with Arthur Brooks, this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by our special guest, Arthur Brooks. And before we get started, I, I want to thank Jason Moore, longtime listener, because it was Jason's note or tweet or mailbag item that pointed me first to Love Your Enemies by Arthur Brooks, which I read his 2019 book. And from the moment I finished it about a year ago, I thought, I'd love to have Arthur on this podcast. So, Jason, you're the catalyst for this happening this week. Now, when we got in touch with Arthur a few months ago, he said, well, let's hold off because I have a new book coming out. And so we thought, yeah, let's hold off until this very week when his new book is out. We're going to talk about his new book, his old book, and his whole life, and yours and mine, and happiness. Build the life you want, the art and science of getting happier. Arthur Brooks is appreciated by many people in many different ways. Growing up a Seattleite, as a young man, he became a concert French horn player in Barcelona, Spain. He then later got his college degree, helped run a think tank. He's written a bunch of good books and is also now a Harvard professor at both the Kennedy School and Harvard Business School in what I bet are lively classrooms. Many will also know him as the happiness columnist for The Atlantic. Well, more formally, the How to Build a Life column, which makes a lot of sense since his new book out this week, out yesterday, in fact, is entitled Build the Life You Want. So it's out there now. So go buy it. You'll love it. I have Arthur Brooks. Welcome to The Motley Fool and Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, David. So lovely to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for for ever since we set it up a couple of months ago. Yes, indeed. Thank you. And let's get right into it with my aliens questions. We're having fun today, Arthur. Aliens have just landed on planet Earth. They come in peace. Having done their research, they selected Harvard University as ground zero for their educational purposes. One visits you during office hours. It's incredibly curious about the concept of happiness. What is happiness? It asks. How would you explain happiness to them in a minute or less? You bet. Happiness is not a feeling. Feelings are evidence of happiness, just like the smell of your Thanksgiving turkey is evidence of the Thanksgiving dinner. Your Thanksgiving dinner actually is a combination of three macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And similarly, your happiness is a combination of three psychological macronutrients, which we call enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Happiness is the quest to get happier by having more enjoyment in life, more satisfaction in life, and finding more meaning in life. That was you. I think you left us with 10 or 15. I wasn't timing you, Arthur, but you nailed that. <laughs> in fact, you nailed it so well that the alien now wants to go to one of your classes. Are you teaching <laughs> this fall at Harvard? 
Yeah, I am teaching this this uh, this semester at uh, this fall at the Harvard Kennedy School. I teach a class called Nonprofit Management and Leadership, which harkens back to my old days teaching that and writing a textbook on it, and then running a big think tank, nonprofit think tank in Washington D.C. So this is a academic class. In the spring at the Harvard Business School, I teach the science of happiness, which is this massively oversubscribed class 180 kids in the seats 400 on the waiting list and a, and there's even a an illegal zoom link they think i don't know about that is amazing and if i recall and we'll get into this maybe later arthur remote distance learning is part of your past yeah it is it is and, and you know and if it weren't for as we say non-traditional learning methods i wouldn't actually have any academic background at all i come from an academic family my father was a a biostatistician, a math professor. His father was a philosophy and theology professor. So it's it's the family business, but I was the wayward child, the black sheep, as it were, um, in almost every way. I was the capitalist in the family, which really <laughs> sort of set me apart. And and I, I, I wandered off after a, a year of college, a, a year of college that went poorly, which is a familiar old story. You know, it's kind of, it, the debate is dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs at this point. <laughs> and then I did what my parents called my gap decade where you know, I, I actually went on the road as a classical French horn player, which was my dream all along. I played chamber music uh, classically. I played a couple of years with a jazz guitar player named Charlie Bird on the road. And then I, then I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony. I was actually went to Barcelona chasing a girl, joined the orchestra. Uh, it took me two years to close the real deal, which is convincing the girl in Barcelona <laughs> to marry me. Uh, 32 years later, we've got grandkids at this point. So you know, the, the music career didn't wind up that great, but the marriage certainly did. And then in my late 20s, I kind of figured out that I was pretty interested in some things besides music. So I started studying, but there was no way to do it. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any, I didn't live any place exactly. I was on the road all the time. So I started taking correspondence classes from universities all over the United States and banking the credits at a place called Thomas Edison State College in Trenton, New Jersey, which is part of the New Jersey State uh, higher ed system. Mm. And before I knew it, I had enough to graduate, and they gave me a bachelor's degree. And that's why I got a bachelor's degree in economics at a month before my 30th birthday. Am I right, recalling correctly, that the conductor of the Barcelona Symphony did not create happiness for you? He was an evil genius. I mean, actually, all conductors are – some are <laughs> geniuses, but all are evil. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, no, I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I remember – actually, we had a really great conductor who was quite a tyrant by the name of Franz Paul Decker. Uh, a Dutch conductor. He had been in Montreal before he came to Barcelona, but a fantastic conductor. Finally, he retires and we're, we're auditioning new conductors. And one after the other, they were even worse. And I remember one of the conductors that was auditioning for us, he reduced a 65-year-old male flute player in the orchestra to tears in front of his entire, in front of all his colleagues. Wow. And, and I thought to myself, could it be worse? And, and in fact, it could and, <laughs> and, and was. It was. It was pretty bad. Back to your new book, Arthur. The first chapter of Build the Life You Want is somewhat surprising in that it begins with happiness is not the goal. Now, this from the happiness columnist, so will bite. What is the goal? The goal can't be happiness because happiness is not attainable, at least in the mortal coil. Uh, and the reason for that is that, that we have evolved all kinds of bad, or not bad, but negative emotions that keep us alive. Most people don't understand the nature of emotions. They're nothing more than signals. They, they, they take inputs from the occipital lobe of your brain, which is processing visual stimuli. And, and then they, the, the limbic system, which is the very middle of your brain, it, it turns all of these outside signals into emotions. 
that's just a machine language that sent that is then sent to the prefrontal cortex of your brain so you know what's going on and you can decide how to react people often think about emotions as nice to have and terrible to have wrong it's all just language it's all just signals and if it weren't for the negative emotions you know which are negatively valence they're 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 unpleasant on purpose so that you will be aversive to what's going on you'd be dead in a week you'd be dead you need fear you need anger you need sadness you need disgust you'd be poisoned or eaten by a tiger or run over by a car you need these things you should be we should wake up every morning and say thank you for my negative emotions today but of course they're not pleasant since you need them but they're not pleasant you can't be completely happy and so that can't be the goal unless you want to be dead which is not the goal for most people today in their <laughs> happiness quest the pain of loss is three times the joy of gain. This kind of research has been backed up again and again. It has real implications yeah. for money and for our investing. Yes. One of the things I've tried to do at The Motley Fool over the years is convince people it's okay to lose. It's okay to have stocks yeah. go down or the bear market happen. If you live a long life, which we all want to for the most part, you're going to have a lot of bear markets. And right. uh, not selling is, is the real trick. So we are hardwired against the downside. And uh, that's important for our survival, but it's not really important, I don't think, for our prosperity. No, that's true. And one of the most important things that people can learn so that they can become happier, the goal is not happiness, but as Oprah Winfrey likes to put it, happierness. She created that that word for our book, as a matter of fact, <laughs> happierness. Because the goal is to actually make progress in happiness, is to learn about your emotions with science to learn to manage your emotions and to learn and grow from the negative emotions. By the way, this sounds an awful lot like your philosophy in The Motley Fool. Thank you. Which is you're going to have losses. That's completely normal. You need to learn emotional fortitude around them. You need to manage the losses and then learn and grow from what has actually happened because of the losses and you'll get better and you're going to make more money and you're going to have more prosperity. So the idea of emotional self-management is an awful lot like portfolio management in this way. Love that. And Arthur, it occurs to me that a book and a great book, and this is a great book and I've enjoyed a couple of your other books, and I think they're great too. A book, I'm curious, how far can it take us to really changing us? We can read your wisdom, we can read Oprah's wisdom. Is right. a book the most effective device truly to change our mindset and habits? Do you supplement in other ways? Can I finish Build the Life that I want, literally building the life that I want capably? Yeah, no. You need to practice. What, ha what you actually read. And this is the biggest problem with, you know, the internet culture, which is you know, one weird trick, you know, the, the, what, the hack culture, you know, the, <laughs> you're trying to find some glitch in the metaphysical matrix and you're going to find it online. I don't think so. You know, and, and that's not how it works. But, but what you do need to make progress in your life is you need knowledge. Then you need to learn deeply. There's a couple of ways to do that. And then you need to change your habits and practices in your life and pass on the ideas. Again, tons of parallels with what you're actually teaching and, and learning with your customers at The Motley Fool about the people who are in this particular community. What you need to do, you're, there are certain principles you need to learn them, but then you need to practice them so you can, they can be part of your life and you can make, get better at them and then pass on the ideas so that we can all share the love. And by the way, when you 
pass on the ideas when you become the teacher, then you own them permanently. But just reading about things isn't enough. Love it. You're reminding me of the great Thomas Jefferson quote. I won't reproduce it verbatim here, but it's all about how ideas are candles and I can light your taper and mine is no the dimmer. And uh, that sharing and that knowledge, learning together and growing together, I think is the story of humanity, even if sometimes we tend to forget that or think it's all about win, lose, lose, win. We're going to talk about that later, though. Let's go back again to the book because you've co-written this book with Oprah. I think a lot of people by now may know that even one day after its launch. I'm curious, what was it like working with Oprah? It was a delight. It was incredible. We actually, we, we sort of discovered each other. I mean, I knew her about her since I was a kid, of course. I mean, she's iconic, probably one of the five most famous people in the United States. But she turns out is a reader of my column at The Atlantic. And she was reading it uh, pretty religiously all the way through the coronavirus epidemic. Now, you know, a call, I've got 500,000 readers a week. I don't know who's reading a column. Like, you don't know exactly who's listening to The Motley Fool. I mean, I bet you that Barack Obama and George W. Bush are both listening to this podcast At right least now. this one. Definitely this one, since you're on it. And then, hello, Mr. President, is all I can say. But the point is that you don't, you don't know. And it turns out Oprah was, was, uh, was a follower of this. Then my last book came out, which is called From Strength to Strength about how strivers, AKA Motley Fool uh, community members, Thank you. how they can get happier as they go through their life. I mean, what is the science of getting happier as you get older? She read that book on the first day it was on the market and called. Now, why? Because she has a podcast about books. <coughs> Super Soul is a phenomenal podcast about books because she's an incredible interviewer and a voracious reader. And she interviewed me and man, it was like a house on fire from the first minute because we see the world the same way. The whole point is that all our, th this is not a job. This is a mission. And I know you agree with me, David. I this do. This is a mission to it. lift people up. You know, we haven't, we don't, look, we don't have that many time, that much time on earth. We don't have that many footsteps that we can put down. You better use every minute that you can to lift up the light and the load of your sisters and brothers. And, and some of us, like you and me, and gosh, Oprah Winfrey, super privileged to be able to do that in a big way. And so as we're talking about it in, in on our show and then offline and, on the phone and yeah. then socially and at her place. And, and, and after a while, we're like, let's do something bigger. And she said, let's write a book. Let's write a book kind of like if in the old days I still had my show and I had you on 30 times until people <laughs> kept saying, who's the bald happiness guy? I keep seeing him every time. Dr. Arthur. They, exactly. Oh, man, you're <laughs> killing me. So, <laughs> so, uh, and, and so we did that. The book is structured like that. It's structured like kind of like one of her shows, but where I'm talking about the deep science of happiness. Now, anybody who's really interested in the science, it's based in academic research that nobody has to read or understand. But if they want to, there's, enough, there's a thousand academic research citations in the footnotes to that thing. So it could actually also be used as a textbook, yeah. but it's not intended as such. It's a book for everybody to learn. It's a it's a manual. It's the owner's manual for your emotions and happiness. I love it. Now, my instinct is that of those thousand footnotes, approximately 1,000 of them were written by Arthur, not Oprah. Am I right? Oh, yeah. No, no. She was, <laughs> she, was, yeah, she, she trusted me, but we had, a, we had great fact checkers, too. And she, it's interesting because she framed every part of the book. You know, she, her introductions are just lovely. And there were certain places where, she, I have to tell you, she's really refined my own understanding of my own science as a, I'm a behavioral scientist. And so, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff since I got my PhD yep. years ago. I mean, it, it's just, but sometimes she'll say something and she'll say, so, so the same question you asked, if it's not happiness, what is it? And I said, well, it's making progress toward hap to getting happier. She said, yeah. it's happierness. She coined this neologism for the book. It's phenomenal. And that's what it's like to work with Oprah, by the way, 
there's not that many people in public life who are the same in their private life because public life, you have to have an image. Mm. Oprah's cracked the code on how to be exactly like the person that people admire. And here's the, you want to know the code? You want to know the secret? Yeah. Is make sure that all of the world's rewards, the fame, the fortune, all of it is dedicated to lifting other people up and bringing them together. That's great. Yeah. Uh, That's your secret. Uh, I love it. And a supplemental great quote you've made me think of is that if you just keep telling the truth and being authentic, you don't have to have a good memory. <laughs> and uh, I think this these are all words to live by. The Motley Fool's purpose statement, Arthur, is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. I don't know if you know that, but it, it keys into so much of your work. So I'm kind of glad that on day one in August of 1994, on our AOL site, before the web existed, we said to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. And we've always thought of that middle piece, that amuse, as as the happier. So these things are are very connected to us. Yeah. Do they, to you, d- does the research show that a richer country is happier and, and maybe that as a country gets richer, it gets smarter? Yeah. So these are complicated questions and, and they have everything to do not just with money, but also with values. So here's the key thing. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great philosopher from 1265, a paraphrasing Aristotle, by the way, he said that people have idols. Everybody has at least one idol. And there are four basic idols that people tend to follow. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the big four. Now, he didn't say they're bad. He said that they can be misused <laughs> if they're worshipped per se. In other words, if your goal in life is money, you're going to wind up being really frustrated. However, if it's a way station towards something that you want more And those really good four goals can bring you true happiness. Those are faith and family and friendship and work that serves other people. So so those idols, they can be used for great good, but we Mm. can't stop there. We shouldn't stop there. So people really should work for their prosperity. They should make very smart investment decisions. We should work for a country with a free enterprise system that has opportunity for everybody. It's so critically important, but not because of the money per se. Rather, so that we have the security to be able to per, to pursue the endeavors that bring true happiness, which are involved in love, in family life, in, in the pursuit of our faith or philosophy, in friendship, in, in creating an, an economy where people have a free labor market and they can pursue their passions so that they can earn their success and serve other people. That's what economic growth is all about. That's why what you're doing really can add to gross national happiness. But and not if we stop on money per se. I love it. Thank you for that. We've always said smarter, happy, and richer, never one without the other two, never two without the third. It's the connection of the three that yeah. is the – it's that Venn diagram nexus point where we try to live. If there were a happiness Olympics, which country do you think would win the gold these days? Maybe the silver, maybe the bronze. So that's an interesting question because you've got – you basically have two – you have two sets, basic sets of nations in the world. You have those that are getting happier and you have those that are stagnating and getting unhappier. And the ones that are stagnating and getting unhappier by all rights should be the happiest countries. These are the OECD developed nations, hmm. United States, Western Europe, etc. And the countries that are getting a lot happier are the ones that are in a process of development. And the reason is this. One of the great secrets to getting happier is making progress in your life. This is the thing. You know, it's funny. When when you know, most people listening to us, they've gone on a diet in their life. And one of the things that you know is that it's actually pretty easy to take the pounds off, but it's almost impossible to keep them off. 
Now, the reason for that is every day you get a little reward when you don't eat the things that you like. The scale goes down, and that's an enormous psychological reward. But then when you hit your goal, the reward is never getting to eat what you like ever again for the rest of your life. Congratulations. Right? That's a huge problem. That's called the arrival fallacy, that when I get there, I'm going to be really happy. When you're making progress, you really, really like mm. it. That's one of the reasons that, that countries in a process of development, even when they're still relatively poor, can be quite happy because life is getting better every single year. This is something that we haven't been able to achieve very successfully in places like the United States. We're finding that happiness is actually in decline. We have a lot of really bad happiness hygiene. We're paying attention to a lot of things like politics and polarization and the news and all of these things, social media, which are just, we're just fiddling while our happiness is burning. Mm. We need to be paying attention to what really matters, which is our love and our relationships and our faith. And, and serving each other. And when we actually do that, then, then it makes, then there's a reason to go to work. Then there's a reason to check your portfolio. Then there's a reason to actually earn the money in the first place. And then at that point, not only would we be winning the happiness Olympics, but we'd be making the greatest progress toward holding that lead for the rest of time. I love it. Now, I don't want to pin you down too hard, Arthur, but Will you please either give a gold, a silver, or a bronze to, to one country, just so I can check my box and feel like that was a question worth asking? Yeah, no, here's the problem. Here's the reason I can't. I want to answer it, David. I promise you, but I can't. And, and, you know, if you go to the United Nations, they'll give you an answer. It's like Denmark, right? And, and why? Well, because they have all of these happiness surveys, and they, and, they, and they compare countries. Now, here's how they do it. They go to 1,000 people in each country, more or less. And they say, how happy are you about your life? And then they take the average and they compare the average between countries. Now, that's crazy when you think about it. That'd be like going to a, a bunch of countries and saying, how much do you like your music? And then seeing who has the best music on the basis <laughs> of, the, of the, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's like, it's different standards. I mean, literally, it's a different word that is derived from mm. different cultural, has different cultural connotations yeah. in different places. I see that. So you can't compare countries. That's the problem. You know, Mexico and their conception of happiness and where they are it just can't be compared with Iceland. I, man, I wish we could, but but we can't do it. All right, and, yeah, I, I I I get it. I will say before we leave the Olympics, I might have read this in one of your books, but this is I think it's a truism, and it may or may not have come from you. But it's often been pointed out that if you look at the three people standing on the podium as the flags go up, the music plays at the Olympics. The the gold medal winner is often either completely exhausted or crying. The yeah. silver medal winner is the least happy person because they're like, I could have had gold. But yeah. the bronze medal winner is smiling because they're like, I yeah. got up here. Yeah, there's a ton of science behind this, David. There's a ton <laughs> of science on this. The secret is go for the bronze. That's <laughs> and that's the, the key takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Well, the number one, the reason for that is, is actually twofold. Saying I'm not going to be happy unless I win the gold is the secret to an unhappy life oh, and misery. Yeah. And part of the reason is because even if you have the gold, then there's only one direction to go, yep. right? You're right. right? And, and then you can't make any more progress, and that violates the progress principle. The problem with silver is that you compare yourself to one person, gold. If you're bronze, there's progress that you can make, and you compare yourself to all the other losers. Now, the true <laughs> happy, unhappiest person in the world is number four, who's not on the podium at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a good point. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Harvard, your Harvard colleague, Stephen Pinker, has written a bit about happiness, too, over the right. years. He joined me on Rule Breaker Investing a few years back. We were discussing his book, Enlightenment Now. I want to quote him here from that book and just get your take, and I quote, 
An implication of the circumscribed role of happiness in human psychology is that the goal of progress cannot be to increase happiness indefinitely in the hope that more and more people will become more and more euphoric. But there is plenty of unhappiness that can be reduced and no limit as to how meaningful our lives can become, end quote. Yeah, Steve's a genius. Um, and there's a lot in that. There's a lot, to, as they say, to unpack. There's a couple of things to think about. Now, to begin with, his conception of what happiness is, is the feeling definition. And we've already dispensed with the feeling. Okay. So it's okay. absolutely the case that we shouldn't try to feel happier and happier and happier. We That's want our Harvard idea. professors disagreeing with each other. That's what academia is for, right? Civilly. <laughs> No, no, Steve is awesome. Steve is great. Steve and I actually sit in the same academic council at Harvard on academic freedom. Yeah, uh, great. There's a hundred of us senior professors at Harvard that are that are working for fantastic. I love I know, it. Super important. And you know, I, I, I'll anything, any place he goes, I know it's a good thing to do. You know, the secret to success at Harvard is you follow Steve around. If Steve, <laughs> if Steve eats a carrot, eat a carrot. I mean, <laughs> anyway, so so that's the first thing to think about. But the broader point that he's making is really important, which is that one of the ways that you can create better well-being is by trying to lower the misery that's around us. And, you know, this is one of the things that a lot of people, not just for society, but for a lot of us as individuals. In this book, Build the Life You Want, How to Build the Life You Want, that Oprah and I put together, one of the things that we have in there is a self-test to see whether or not your problem, or not your problem, your challenge in life, is that you need greater happy sets of emotions or that the intensity of your negative emotions is too high. Now, what we find is there's four groups of, of people across the population. There's people who have intense positive and intense negative emotions. Mm. Those are called mad scientists. You have people who have high positive and low negative emotions. Those are cheerleaders. You, these are quarters, equal quarters in the population. Okay. You have high negative and low positive. Those are the poets. And then you have the low negative and the low positive, the low affect people, and those are the judges. Mm. Now, the world needs all four of these things, but all of us need to understand which we are. And I'm speaking to a mad scientist, world. right? I'm a mad, I'm super mad scientist. Keep going. Like maddest, I just wanted to make be clear, scientist. have our cards on the table. I think yeah, I'm man. probably also a mad scientist. Yeah, I bet you are. This I mean, is I, dangerous. I, Two of us oh, talking yeah. to each other. This is combustible, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, what's really dangerous is if you mar if you marry a mad scientist. Because if your wife is a mad scientist, she is not. it's going to be hammer and tongs all the time. <laughs> Actually, you know what's worse is two cheerleaders. You know that because cheerleaders they can't see threats. Their biggest weakness is that you have high positive and low negative. Then you have a real, a real weakness, a real kind of blind spot with with threats in your environment. And so when two cheerleaders get married, they can't actually see the threats. And you know what they do? They spend all the money and go bankrupt. Mm. Because they don't, there's nobody going. Ah, uh, we better save for a rainy day here, right? Wow. And like, and they they don't subscribe to the Motley Fool. I mean, I love the money application at this point. I do want to correct myself. I do think I'm actually a cheerleader. So, um, I, I wish great. I were a mad scientist in some ways, but I, I I'm definitely somebody who doesn't see or look for downsides and doesn't think too right. much about that. So I do think I'm a pretty avid cheerleader. I'm definitely not married to a, 30 plus years myself to a cheerleader, would you briefly share your own marital uh, pairing? My wife is a cheerleader. My okay. wife is a cheerleader. Okay. She's a cheerleader bordering on mad scientist, but she has much lower <laughs> negative affect than I do. Much lower negative Well, affect. who doesn't love a personality test? Everybody wants to take one, and I'm glad it's packed right there in the book. It's right there. It's called the Panis Test, the Positive Affect, Negative Affect series. Okay, so back to Steve Pinker, though. 
So Steve says that what we should be working on is lowering the negative affect in society, lowering the misery in society, because there is a lot. And that's what you can do with money. Money is really good for lowering unhappiness. It's terrible for raising happiness. When the government says, I'm going to make you happier, watch your mm. wallet because a bad thing is about to come. You're about to get taxed like crazy for a dumb program. What you really want is public policymakers that are dedicated to reducing the sources of misery. What are the sources of misery? Loneliness, unemployment, uh, uh, food insecurity, lack of health care. Now, I'm not saying how you should do it. I'm uh -huh. a big capitalist, right? Yep. I mean, I'm really into the free market system. So I prefer free market systems, but I understand that the markets fail sometimes, and that's why we have public policy. There's another point that's really interesting about this. People say, does money buy happiness? And that truth is, individually, money lowers unhappiness when you don't have very much of it. So up to 75, 80, $100,000, you will actually get past the sources of avoidable misery in your life. The problem is that's usually when you're young and you get into a mental pattern of thinking that if I get more money, I'm gonna feel better. When I was a kid, kid, when I was in my early 20s <laughs> and I was a musician, I was poor. I didn't have healthcare. I didn't go to the dentist for six years and I needed to go to the dentist. Now, of course, I will admit that there wasn't a day that I didn't go without cigarettes. So I guess it was priorities. Okay. But anyway, yep. yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I quit many, many decades ago. But the point is, when I was 25, I finally had enough money. I went to the dentist. I filled a bunch of cavities and I felt way better. And I remember concluding money buys happiness. No, 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 no. I didn't get the sums right. Money had lowered my unhappiness. And mm. that happens to everybody. Now, when people get to the point where they've defrayed all of these sources of unhappiness in their life, they keep thinking that more and more and more money is going to make them feel better and they can't figure out why it doesn't work and it doesn't work because you got past the threshold but there are a lot of people in our society that we can do that for and that's what steve's talking about fantastic thank you for that i also recognize maybe the work of teresa amabile if i'm pronouncing her name right because she wrote the progress principle and you're yeah. you're talking about the importance of making a little bit of progress every day she's also yeah. harvard prof this you you all are loaded up there in cambridge massachusetts yeah. with happiness and progress freaks yeah, that's why the aliens are coming here. <laughs> I knew there was a reason. I I'm actually kind of, I think that there's aliens on the faculty already. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to see the streaming series. I had initially <laughs> intended our, our discussion to focus on the wonderful lessons from your 2019 book, Arthur, which was entitled Love Your Enemies, for understandable reasons, given that Build the Life You Want debuts in bookstores and on Amazon this week. We refocus the conversation, but if you're open to speaking about the powerful insights you provided in Love Your en Enemies. I'd love to mix in a little of that right now. Sure, absolutely. Love Your Enemies is, I mean, obviously something I care very, very deeply about. And, you know, in, even in the book we were talking about, how to, you know, build the life you want, that really the secret is love more. Yep. Love is the secret, but the hardest kind of love is to love your enemies. And the most transgressive message really in the history of our society is that which is contained all over every spiritual tradition, but quoting the New Testament to the Christian Bible, um, you know, you have heard to lo love your friends and hate your enemies. But today I give you a new commandment, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That weird little teaching, which you find in Hinduism and Buddhism and Judaism and Islam and, and, and you name it. If you follow it, it's going to change your life. But it's unbelievably hard. Well, in Love Your Enemies, Arthur, you assert that no matter which side of the political divide that we find ourselves in and. Even though I'm a Washington, D.C. native, I don't have much interest in picking sides. I prefer the private sector to the public sector. I think you might as well. And I find myself with many other people in the oft-ignored political 
center. But no matter which side of the political divide someone might be on, you say that a single problem, a a single, I think, I think I might even say evil, a single evil, perhaps you would too, is the contempt right. that each side harbors for the other. Contempt. Would you briefly define that word for us? Redefine it in the context of America here in 2023. Yeah, sure. So philosophers call contempt the conviction of the worthlessness of another person. You're convicted that somebody's worthless. That's contempt. Now, as if, neurophysiologically, here's contempt. There's four negative emotions that your limbic, your limbic system, basic emotions that they produce. Anger, sadness, disgust, and fear. Those are the big four. When you mix them together, you have tons of combinations. Anger is a hot emotion. It says, I care, I want you to change. Disgust is a cold emotion. Anger is produced, is, is largely uh, uh, produced in the amygdala of the brain. Disgust in the insular cortex of the brain, literally different parts of the, of the, of the limbic system of the brain. That's a cold emotion that says, get rid of it, mm. get rid of it. When you mix disgust and anger, that's contempt. Contempt is this hot, cold emotion that says, I hate what that person is doing. So therefore, I'm going to cast them out into outer darkness because they're completely worthless. This is a true expression of hate. That's what hate actually looks like. Now, the problem is it's become the vernacular of politics. If you look at any you know, late night cable pundit show, if you listen to most of your favorite politicians on the right or the left, they're not your favorites, but the, the, that come from the 5% fringe of populism and polarization. It's pure contempt all the time. I love this country, but them... They hate this country because they're stupid and evil. That's the pure language mm. of contempt. And what they're trying to do, these are dark triad personalities that are manipulating us. They have a culture where they're conscripting us. They're drafting us as soldiers into their culture war by trying to hijack the amygdala and insular cortices of our brain. Strong words and from somebody who understands the science of it. And I so appreciate that, Arthur. I'm going to quote you uh, from... A, a quick passage in your book, just would love to have you react to this. Quote, yeah. you, might, you might be getting the impression that this is yet another one of those books calling for more civility in our political discourse and tolerance of differing points of view. It isn't. Those standards are pitifully low. Don't believe it? Tell people my spouse and I are civil to each other, and they'll tell you to get counseling. Or say, my coworkers tolerate me, and they'll ask you, how your job search is going. I want something more radical and subversive than civility and tolerance, something that speaks to my heart's desire. The first word in this book's title, you've already said it, but I'd love to hear some more on it, love. Love, baby. Now, I know people are listening going, yeah, great. Yeah, thanks, Brooks. You know, Mr. Hippie, <laughs> laying it on the, it's like, what are you, what are you, John Lennon? No, 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 no. The problem is people don't understand love. Look, people don't understand happiness. They think it's a feeling. People don't understand love because they think that's a feeling too. Love is not a feeling. To like is a feeling. To love is a commitment and an act of will. To, to love, according to Aristotle and all of the even medieval philosophers who looked at this, is to will the good of another as other. So think about this. Think love about it. Good. I mean, it's like if you, if you love somebody, it doesn't mean you like them. It doesn't mean you approve of them. It means you will their good and you've decided to do so. That's what love really is. Love is not for weak people. Love is for strong people. You know what's for weak people? Contempt and hatred. Mm. That's for weak people. 
and we're weakening as a country. And one of the reasons that our, our happiness is falling is because we're falling into these patterns of contempt and hatred, which just makes us weak. It makes us morally weak. And, and, and ultimately, it, it weakens our ability to get happier and more prosperous and free. So this book came out, this particular one, again, not the brand new book, Build the Life You Want, which is out this week. Buy it on Amazon. That's what I do. I love e-books. I love kindling up my highlights and sending them to Readwise where they stay with me forever, but that's a separate topic another time. Um, but this book, Love Your Enemies, Arthur, you wrote it in 2019. It was published, I think. In that means you yeah. probably wrote it in 18. You were probably thinking about it, observing since 16 or maybe since, I don't know, 30 years before that because we're about the same age. But I, I'm curious, how do you score us in the four years since the launch of that book? So Love Your Enemies was never intended to be an overnight solution. It was never intended to be a dramatic one weird internet trick. Here's one <laughs> weird trick. You lose belly fat. Love your enemies. It's not like that. It doesn't work. By the way, the one weird trick on the internet, which is a don't eat grapes or something, that doesn't work either. That's all nonsense. They're trying to steal from you. This is the long-term play. This is a way of life. That's how the Buddha talked about the idea. This is how Jesus Christ talked about the idea that this is a way of life, deciding to love your enemies. So when I wrote that book, I really had to offer it up and say, what do I want? Well, you know what I want? I want, you know, Democrats and Republicans to figure out something they can agree on so they don't keep screwing up our country through the, the sheer hatred and contempt that they have. I want political parties and public policymakers and, and, and people in neighborhoods to say, huh, I sure would like to know if somebody disagrees with me, why? And, and maybe there's something I can learn from that. I would really love that. But the truth is I'm not naive. I wasn't born yesterday. Look, I was the president of the American Enterprise Institute for 11 years. I have suffered a great deal in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I know how these things work, but you got to throw it out there. You actually have to say what, what winning looks like under the circumstances. And winning for our country, for, for humanity, is really all about love. And the hardest kind of love is to love our enemies. And if we want to find our way out of the current morass, which I don't, you know, look, 93% of Americans say how, how, that they hate how divided we become as a country, 93%. The 7% who don't hate it are in charge. Mm. That's a huge problem. Those are the generals in the, in the obnoxious culture war that we've got around us. And we need to actually have a little mutiny. And that's a mutiny of love and loving our enemies. When, when we do that, by the way, I do a lot of work with the Dalai Lama. I've been working with Dalai Lama for the last 11 years. I've written with him and done a lot of conferences with him. I saw him as recently as this March. And he always says, I destroy my enemies when I, when I, when I, when I love my enemies. Mm. They become my friends. And then I said, okay, I said, why do you want to destroy your enemies? He says, no, that's not the point. The point is I destroyed the illusion that they were my enemies in the first place. Mm. Now, you do have real enemies, but there's no harm in loving them too. Because the innocent bystanders who are watching the culture war around you, they're going to say, I like the loving, reasonable guy more than the hateful, contemptuous guy. And then you win. You still win. I love you it. Don't lose. I love it. And I vote for it, and I'm trying to live it. And I think a lot of your fans are too, and we're grateful for your leadership in that regard. I, I am someone who, in my own small way, tries to unite. Every day tries to bring us together to see our common interest and work toward good. And even something like the stock market. It's right. pitting two people on opposite sides of the table of a trade. It's effectively uniting buyers with sellers. And both are satisfactorily choosing into the transaction from opposite sides. So business, when yeah. done right as conscious capitalism, creates a win-win-win for customers, employers, partners, and suppliers, and shareholders. 
Win, win, win. The nature of politics, this is the question, seems to be win, lose. And then maybe four or eight years later, Arthur, lose, win. Does it have to be that way? Is that the system? It, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I realize that if you go to a football game or a congressional election, you're going to Zero sum. You're, it's going to be zero sum to a certain extent, but it shouldn't even be then. Because the losing team, the New England Patriots, when they lose to the Seattle Seahawks, I hope, <laughs> you know, when that happens, then I, I still want the New England Patriots to say that was a good game. The fans were enriched. We made a bunch of money playing that game, and we learned a better strategy from learning that game. Well that's said. Not a, that's not a win-lose. That's a, that's, a, that's a win more and win a little bit less kind of transaction. All transactions should be like that in politics as well. Furthermore, when should it really not be, be win-lose? When you're dealing with somebody with whom you disagree. You know, in business, when you're negotiating, you don't want to take everything off the negotiating table and screw the other guy. Ordinarily, because unless you want to have a one-off transaction with that guy, no, on the contrary, you want that guy to walk away from the table going, that was awesome. I love working with that guy. That's why you always work to make sure that the other person is kind of happy too. And mm -hmm. that's what we should be doing more of in politics. When I look at what the Republicans and Democrats are doing in Washington today, the biggest mistake that the demagogic populist politicians are making is if I don't get 100%, that means I've lost. If I don't get 100% of what I want, that means vote me out because I haven't stood up for your interests. And that's crazy. Mm. That's just bad business and it's completely unnecessary. We should be looking in the Congress. We should be looking the president of the United States. He should be saying, I want to make sure that I, I like I, I want more of these left wing things than the right wing things. But I don't want all the right wingers to think, feel like they're getting screwed every single day. Yeah. That's bad politics. That's bad policy, and it's disordered morally, and that's the way our country's gone. There's a little bit of history you call, toward the end of the book, you call out, in 1960, I'm quoting you again, only 5% of Americans said they would be displeased if their child married someone from the other political party. By right. 2010, that would be 50 years later, the number had moved from 5% to 40%. Percent and no doubt has risen from there. You go on. We've become far removed indeed from Thomas Jefferson's admonition that, quote, a difference in politics should never be permitted to enter into social intercourse or to disturb its friendships, its charities, or justice, end quote. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, but the real interesting question is why has that happened? You know, what has actually happened along the way? And some people can say because the right wing is more right wing and the left wing is more left wing. And so and so there's bigger differences between members of the other party. I get that. There's no more Dixiecrats. There's no more blue dog Republicans or blue dog Democrats. What are we talking about? We're talking about Rockefeller Republicans. There's no more of that stuff going on. I, I get it. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that we have a sense, a fading sense of the real metaphysical in our lives, the transcendent in our lives. You know, this increase in the importance of politics is totally contemporaneous with the with the with the fact that that religious and spiritual activity has been on the decline. Hmm. The sacrosanct is very important. We are made for a sense of the metaphysical and the transcendent. And when we stop getting it from nutritious ends, from from good stuff. And look, you don't have to be like, I'm a, I'm a practicing Christian. It's the most important thing in my life, but you don't, I'm a social scientist and trust me, you can get the benefits, not from being a Catholic. I, I, I mean, it, I recommend it, but you can also get it from reading the stoic philosophers for ethical principles or, 
or, or adopting a meditation practice with loving kindness meditation, you'll get the same benefits from it mm. because you will be transcendent to your own here and now, which is so boring and which is so tedious. But if you don't, if you don't have a practice like that, you're going to look for meaning. You're going to look for the sacrosanct elsewhere. And there's going to be some snake oil salesman in Washington, D.C. saying that you're going to understand your identity. You're going to identify the, the enemy. I'm going to give you a series of rituals and secret language if you follow my political point of view. Mm. And that's what's happening in America. Politics has become religion to people. Mm. And if I were an enemy of the United States, I'd be cheering this on all out. And that's oh, yeah. something I often think about. So thank you for your eloquence and, again, your thought leadership here. At, near the, at the end of that book, Arthur, you say, I just reduced this whole book to a few lessons, which you do. But you go on to say, want it even simpler? Go find someone with whom you disagree, listen thoughtfully, and treat him or her with respect and love. The rest will flow naturally from there, end quote. That's basically something that anyone can take away. Anyone from yeah. this conversation can take away. And, uh, and, and use, put into real practice in life for everybody's happiness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. You know, th these days I do a lot of work because I'm teaching MBA students the science of happiness. And one of the things they're most interested in, in my happiness class, is the neuroscience of falling and staying in love. It's, it's what they want to know. I get it. You know, I was 28 mm. years old at one point myself. And that was, you know, that's all I cared about in my 20s as well was, you know, finding the love of my life and keeping the love of my life. And, and, and the problem is it's getting harder and harder and harder because dating apps, they sort on compatibility. And, and compatibility is death for your relationship. Hmm. You need difference, all kinds of difference. If you want to have an exciting relationship in which you have, you know, ways that you can fill each other's gaps in, in which you can complete each other. But what you find is with the technology that, that, and that it doesn't sort on complementarity. You know, matchmakers will say this person fits really nicely with that person, not because they're the same, not because they look like siblings. That's not hot. They want because they look different than each other. They've got a kind of a repertoire. You find that the happiest marriages are often between one introvert and one extrovert. That's very commonly the happiest marriages that we find. But the dating apps, basically, they say, okay, what's important to you? And we're so vain that we say, well, what's important to me? My politics and my taste in music and what I like to eat and, you know, the cities that I think are cool, Austin, Texas, which is apparently a personality now or something. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you put it in your dating profile and you've, you've ruled out people who are different than you. And this is really critical because mm. that makes it harder and harder and harder for you to see people who are different and literally love people who are different. Now, so I, I, would think, I would think in time, artificial intelligence, if it's truly intelligent, would be able to start discovering really interesting new connections and possibilities, especially if powered up by some of the research and thinking that you're smacking down here this week on the podcast. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that ultimately what they're going to find is it will say, here are the most successful relationships, and here's actually how we can, how we can back out the way that you should meet and what you, what you should be looking for. But we have a tendency to look in the mirror and say, that's, that's, my, perfect, that's my perfect wife by looking in the mirror. And, and you know, I want somebody who's really smoking hot, but, but I want somebody who, you know, God <laughs> does, knows doesn't vote Republican or whatever it happens to be. But what happens is I suggest to my students that they take certain areas like politics out of their political profile and they say, and they make a deal with the people they're going to go out on a date with that we will not talk about politics until at least the fifth date if we get there. Fantastic. Now, why? Because that instigates the neurochemical cascade of falling in love. 
And by the time you get to a fifth date, if you get to one, you will care a lot less about somebody else's political point of view. Mm. You know, I read in the wonderful book, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker about parties, and I've since been to one where you're not allowed to say anything other than your first name and nothing about what you do for the first two hours of the gathering. And then maybe over dessert, you reveal, oh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm Arthur Brooks, and uh, yeah, I just wrote a book with Oprah, and I teach at Harvard. And you're wait, that was, you were just Arthur to us the first first two hours. So I've experienced that. It's it's a great feeling. I really appreciate that advice. I love that one of the most popular things learned by Harvard MBAs is relationship advice from the good doctor. So uh, yeah. that's fun to yeah. hear. We're going to start running out of time, Arthur. Let me ask you before we go to buy, sell, or hold, our signature game to close. Do you invest in individual stocks? Are you a stock market person at all? What's your approach yeah. to money? So I am an efficient markets guy. I am a, an economist by training. My degrees and graduate degrees are in applied microeconomics, but markets are something that I recognize what I don't know. And I understand that if I have a lot less knowledge and markets are relatively efficient, it's a lot better that I have two choices, get more you know, educated or get a guy. And those are sort of the, those are the two strategies. And getting the, given the fact that I'm specializing in something be, besides this, I have a guy. Yeah, and I trust my guy, and my guy is—you know—my guy is, makes smart decisions, and he makes prudent decisions, and he takes my emotions out of the equation, and and so that's how I do it. Now I have done it a little bit with my kids, good, because you know my kids—I want them to understand how this kind of thing works, and so they set up their brokerage accounts, and they'll say, and they'll we'll we'll, we'll look at a little bit of analysis on these things, and the kids will make their decisions, and they'll lose their butts. So then they understand that they're not so good at picking socks. Oh, I wouldn't put it past them. They're pretty bright kids. Plus, I think kids are getting smarter. But I'm getting ahead of myself because we're about to play buy, sell, or hold. So, Arthur Brooks, okay. these are things that are not stocks. Uh, right. But I'm asking you if they were, would you be buying, selling, or holding? Kind of a lightning round. So right. let's get started. Let's start with Arthur, buy, sell, or hold kids these days. Mm, buy. Why? Buy, buy, buy. Get to all your money. Buy, buy. Why? Because children will bring you meaning. They won't always bring you enjoyment, especially when they're teenagers, but they will bring you meaning. This is a critically important thing for people to understand. I've seen this again and again and again in my data. The, the media have lied to us about this, that somehow it will take away your opportunities. It'll somehow, especially for women, that it will lower your sense of well-being and meaning. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong for both women and men. Bye. Buy, sell, or hold. Hard and fast distinctions around generations like millennials and Gen Z. So, well, this is age, not generation. You know, we have a tendency, we always mistake age and generation. I used to do work on <laughs> symphony orchestra economics because I was an old symphony orchestra player. So I became an economist. I studied symphony orchestras. And people are always going like, we're doomed. The, the, the audience is dying. Well, how do you know? Because they're all old. Well, guess what? They're going to die, but then there's going to be new old people, and they're going to like classical music. It's age, not generation. There are – look, I mean, my friend Gene Twenge, who teaches – who does, you know, he teaches that iGen stuff with Jonathan Haidt. There are particular circumstances. We know that millennials and Gen Z are a lot more uh, oriented toward identity politics. But most of the phenomena that we see are age, not generation. Thank you. Next one. Buy, sell, or hold distance learning. Buy. God knows I should say buy because I got my <laughs> bachelor's degree by distance learning. Yeah. And if I were telling you right now, sell, it, was, it would actually reflect relatively poorly <laughs> on my own education. But the truth of the matter is we need more opportunities in our society. 
And the way that we're going to do that is by figuring out all kinds of creative and new ways to deliver educational opportunity to people at the margins of society and in non-traditional circumstances. I'm about opportunity all day long. Bye. It's related to distance learning, but it's different. Arthur Brooks, buy, sell, or hold remote work these days. You're allowed to hold something. You don't always have to be a buyer or a seller. I know. I got to sell. I got to sell. Do, do tell. I know, I, the hate mail's coming in to, you know, <laughs> the Motley Fool. Don't, don't blame the Motley Fool. This is Arthur Brooks talking here. And the reason is because I've seen the data. And I get it. I get it how convenient it is. It's made me phenomenally productive, too. You know, I'm able to give a speech in Milan when I'm in Denver, and it's just great. Plus, I'm able to keep up with all kinds of classes and do office hours when I'm on the road. It's so incredibly convenient. But I see what's happened to loneliness in this country. I have never seen a downdraft in average happiness in the United States like I've seen since the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. And it hasn't come back because people haven't gone back in, in very large numbers across large parts of the economy, especially among professionals under 30. And so the key thing is basically this. When you're lonely your executive centers will lie to you in your brain. They'll tell you, you know what you need? You need to curl up on the couch with a fuzzy blanket, eating ice cream and watching Netflix. When the truth of the matter is you need to call a friend, go get some sunshine, get out your bike. Mm. That's what you actually need. And what, what's happening to us is that for the sake of the convenience, which is real and true, and for some people it is really, really wonderful, we've made a whole lot of sacrifices that are not leading us to a, a good place in this country. Strong sell, I hear you, thank you for that. Um, let me ask you, before we do our last two, uh, you're often thinking about our country, America. Right. You were in charge of the American Enterprise Institute. You are at America's oldest, or is it William & Mary, university. And, uh, and so you think a lot about our country. I'm curious, because I have two some, and a lot of us who work for organizations do the core values for that organization. They're like, what, what do we stand for? What is, what is this program? What does this for-profit company stand for? And I'm right. curious, Arthur, because sometimes I've liked to ask, and I don't intend the question to be rhetorical. In this case, I hope it won't be. But if you were to come up with a few of the core values that you believe we should hold together as Americans, what core values occur to you? The, the core values that we need to remember is that we're all sisters and brothers, that we all have the fundamentally the same set of challenges and emotions, and that when we're pushing somebody else down, fundamentally, we're pushing ourselves down. We need the sense of solidarity in which we understand that your happiness is my happiness as well. In other words, we need a mission value of lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love. Mm. That is the privilege and obligation of people in a good society. Thank you. All right, last two. Buy, sell, or hold, winning an argument. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hold. That's a hold because the truth of the matter is that when you win, it's a Dale Carnegie used to say, he used to have this little poem he used to read. I know you know it. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If you win an argument and somebody else loses, you have also lost. If you win an argument and you've persuaded somebody else, you have won. So it depends on the context. I got to hold that because what I do want to do is I want to win arguments and I want other people to win arguments with me because we've used the principle of loving persuasion. Mm. And and winning an argument is human. It's, it's civil. It, it's not something to avoid. Arguments are not things to avoid. As spouses, as uh, countries, as organizations, we need to have internal conflict in arguments. Otherwise, we're not being real. We just need to learn how to handle them. 
That's right. You know, we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. That's the truth. And every couple that's on the rocks and, and America is like an enormous couple on the rocks. That's what we need in this country. Disagree better. Last one for you. Buy, sell, or hold. I, I just have to ask this. I don't even know what you're going to think. Buy, sell, or hold college football. I'll buy it. It's fun. It's <laughs> it's it's awesome. I mean, here's the kind of thing. I, I'm not an expert in college football, but if it comes on TV, I'm hooked. Like, I mean, I can see two colleges I've never heard of, and I want to watch. I want to watch because it's exciting, and everybody's having a good time, and people are not suffering, and 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 it's that that's as close to use as you can get to good, clean, fun in modern society. I'm I'm, I'm buying. Any truth of the rumor that Harvard is being courted by the Big Ten? I don't know. That's a good question. I, you know, there's a, it's like that boy, is that ever internal politics? I'll ask the president. <laughs> Arthur, thank you. You've been most gracious with your insights and your time. And it was a delight to spend time one fool to another. Congratulations on the publication of Build the Life You Want with A. Brooks and O. Winfrey. Carpe diem. Go get them. <laughs> right on, man. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. And thanks to everybody for listening. Well, food for thought, richly served up by my guest star this week, Arthur Brooks, in our ongoing quest to get smarter, happier, and richer together. And now I'm talking about you and me, and never just one without the other two, smarter, happier, and richer together. I think there's, there's quite a lot to reflect on from this week's podcast, so I would say do reflect some in the week ahead. True understanding, wrote leadership author great Warren Bennis, true understanding comes from reflecting on your experience. So I would say after this week's podcast, do. And then join me next week for our latest, newest episode of the Market Cap Game Show. Yep, it only comes around four times a year. It's special like that. And next week is one of those weeks. In the meantime, get happier out there. Carpe diem. Even if it just involves reducing some unhappiness, your own or someone else's. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.